This is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I am Steve Wessler. We will be talking today about domestic violence with Pam Gagnon da Silva, a licensed clinical professional counselor at Next Step, a domestic violence project working in Hancock and Washington counties. Pam's colleague, Maggie MacArthur, will join us later. Maggie is a paralegal and works with victims of domestic abuse and coordinates with police and prosecutors. Pam, can you just have a little brief overview of what is next, next Steps? What do you do there? Sure. Thank you for having us on today, Steve. I really um, am excited about your show. Um, so Next Step is a nonprofit, and it helps support and empower people of all genders who are affected by domestic violence. So a large part of what we do is safety planning, um, and we also strive to prevent the cycle of domestic violence through education and social change, and that's the education piece of our work. So our goal is to arrive at an atmosphere of equality and respect and compassion and autonomy in relationships. Well, that, that's, that's a lot of different and varied work on a very difficult topic. Um, but what is your p part of this? What, um, what, how would you describe what you do? Sure. So in, I began as an advocate and advocacy, I continue to work as an advocate as well. Advocacy is um, usually in the moment and a large part of what we do is supporting people emotionally and empowering them to make choices about um, their relationship and, and where they want to take that in, in the moment. Um, and then in 2015, I designed a counseling program that works uh, within the, um, the, the Next Step nonprofit. So typically we were referring people to an external um, or external counselors that were, we knew were trained in, um, to, manage, to work with domestic violence victims or survivors. Um, so we took that program and we um, now run that out of our offices. And so we serve, I would say, uh, typically I serve between um, 800 and 850 um, or I offer about 800 uh, sessions per year to people um, at no cost, um, out-of-pocket expense for the client. Um, and there's a few criterias. Um, we really wanted to serve people who did not have health insurance and would not be seen anywhere else, or people who might not be able to access their health insurance safely because their um, partner um, maybe held a policy. Um, and or people who had tried to get that service in the community and had not been able to find someone who really had an understanding of domestic violence, a professional who was trained to work with that. Uh, so so, so some, of, some of your one-on-one your -on -one work may just be you meeting one time and others it sounds like you are maybe seeing people for a long time. How, how long um, to the clients sort of sort of generally spend and what's what's your longest time been right so typically most people you know six months or so is about the average time that I see someone I have some people that I have been working with for a few years 
um, and other people, you know, really reach their goals in a matter of a couple months. It just, it's really an individual uh, process and it depends on what the goals uh, the individual person has and, um, and when they feel they've achieved what they've come to do. Uh, I imagine it can be difficult for, for you to make the decision that it's safe to discontinue the counseling. Right, and I seldom do that. I really let the people that I work with drive that process. You know, I'm confident that people know when they've achieved what they want to achieve. Uh, there are times it's not uncommon for someone to begin counseling services and step away because they're coping with other matters and then come back. Um, so, you know, it's, I frequently have contact with people um, at different points through the process. You know, they might come for several months and then leave and then come back again and work for another several months in a different piece of that, um, you know, um, resiliency or recovery process. Do, do you sometimes have a, um, a client who decides to discontinue and you are really worried that that person is still living with somebody that creates danger? Absolutely. It's not uncommon for me to work with people who are still engaged in relationships that cause them, engaged with people who are causing them harm. Um, sometimes living with them, sometimes not. Um, and it's really not our goal to, um, to determine whether or not someone should leave a relationship. You know, that's their choice always about whether or not they're ready to do that um, and when it's safe to do that. So yeah, we, de we definitely do worry and we do a lot of safety planning. So we try to come up with a plan ahead of time for, you know, just keeping, keeping in touch, you know, knowing that a person is safe um, and you know, encouraging that person to communicate if they've decided to discontinue services for a little while. Does uh, Next Step have any programs with men? Yes, we serve men. We serve people of all genders. So, and, and we offer the same services to everyone. So, you know, men can access services in the same way that women or people of other genders can. Do, do you have or? Is it in planning to have a um, group um, or some other mode of working with abusers? So we've started, um, we began um, thinking about how we provide um, batteries intervention to people up in Washington County. And so that program is just um, in the beginning stages. And uh, we're hoping we're hoping to get that. With COVID, things have been a little bit complicated with the startup of that program. But yes, so that will be that's new for us. Um, typically, and, and we say you know the service really we're providing is for the people who have um, been affected by the abuse. And so um, we're really I think it's an interesting thing to think about. But we're really serving the, the people who have survived or been victimized by providing the batteries intervention to people who are, um, who are abusing. Because if we can stop the abuse, then we can um, make life better for, for the whole family, right? So. Thank you. I, I want to move on really back in time. Um, mm -hmm. I'm interested in what was your journey or your path that brought you to this 
in extraordinarily important, but also extraordinarily difficult work. So throughout my life, I've always been really interested in people, and I, I just love people, and I love their stories, and so that's been a, a lifelong thing. I think, um, you know, I, I began in nursing, and I attended Worcester City Hospital School of Nursing back in 1987, and I, I started that program with the thought that um, I would really be connecting with people and helping people, and I... Nursing is very fast-paced. I mean, at that point, we and probably still so, uh, we really had um, a lot of people to work with, you know, within a shift. So we didn't have a lot of time to really sit and be with people. And I encountered a man at one point um, in my training, and he was he was dying. He was um, in the final days of his life, and he really needed someone to be there with him. And there was no family. Um, or you know, friends there with him. And um, I just had this overwhelming desire to, to sit with him. And I, I learned a lot about myself through that process. And I learned about my capacity to really be present. And we have uh, one of our staff attorneys, Rick Doyle, always says you know, that those of us who can should um, and have an obligation to. And I think it's um, knowing that I have that capacity. And, and, and then of course, once our eyes are open to this, um, you know, cycle of abuse and in, inequity and equality in our society, it's really hard to close them again. And so, you know, that, that life-changing experience of realizing that really what I'm here to do is, is to be present for people and to support them through the process. And then my own um, desire to, you know, and fascination with resiliency and to want to build that um, those two things coming together, I think, really shaped my um, my journey in this work. And, I, and then, I, you know, I'm also um, a survivor of uh, domestic and family violence myself, and I have a lot of loved ones that have been impacted and um, by domestic violence over the years as well. So, you know, all of the there's there's many factors that come together. I think that bring us to this work. It'd be hard to point to just one single okay. piece. Um, well, you pointed to um, some that are really, really important. Um, so, um, with I assume that most of your clients in counseling are women and maybe some men. But um, what what are the what are the issues that women are are dealing with in terms of what's what's most present for them what's what's most scary for them mm -hmm. I think the the most challenging part is really um, letting go of the dream that a person has for their you know when we enter a relationship we typically enter with an idea of where we want that relationship to go and, and we have some sort of dream that we create around um, what that's going to look like as it unfolds over the years and with domestic violence, that dream, the reality is very different than that dream. And so there's a lot of grief work. And then there's the layer of trauma that happens throughout the relationship. So, so those two pieces, you know, the, the letting go of the dream, the grief work is really um, what causes people a lot of anxiety and, um, and a lot of sadness and, you know, what we might call depression. So I think that's the hardest piece. I think the next 
most difficult piece is um, the fear about the future, you know, em embracing the uncertainty, where they're going to go um, with their life after leaving that relationship. And, and safety is a huge, huge factor. Typically, we're addressing that more in the advocacy piece. Um, and, and um, you know, emotional safety as well as um, foundations, you know, where, where's a person going to live? What are they going to eat? How are they going to afford to um, to support themselves, those kind of and, things. And, and I would think that um, for women who have been the victim of violence, uh, that's always, that's always there. Um, I'm not saying it's there forever, but, mm -hmm. but during, during that time of trying to make a decision to move, move out of come or to have a partner come who's engaged in abuse move out of the family home it just yeah, and you, you know then you know with children um trying to decide you know how does that happen with children uh, family matters get very complicated it's you know not uncommon i think many many of the people i work with are really concerned about um their children being in the home with someone who's abusive and, and them not being there anymore to be able to, to act as a buffer to any violence that might occur. Pets, it's really hard to think about where do I go and that I can take my pets to. A lot of shelters don't allow that. Next Step does have a grant that allows for sheltering pets, so we're really fortunate in that way. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, those things become really hard. So for, for you, what's it, what's it mean or what's it look like? to um, get to a point with somebody and you think it's a success in the counseling process? Mm -hmm. So the hallmark of success for me is really when I see someone at the place where they start talking about, um, you know, what we might call the silver lining, you know, what they've learned about themselves and how they want to impart that to the world. So they have this experience and they start looking for what can I do with this experience that has value in the world and when you know and, and they do beautiful things with it you know create art or um, educate other people or just support a friend or, or maybe it's something really small like just smiling at someone in, in the grocery store you know um, but they really start thinking about you know I've survived this and I have this this knowledge now and, and how can I help my community with that knowledge that's when I know someone is you know they're there. They've arrived. Um, and uh, as you talked, um, uh, your 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 smile about um, this work is really hopeful work. <laughs> I think that I often hear people say your work must be really hard or your work must be really depressing. And I would say no. It's it's very hopeful work. I get to be um, a part of really watching someone. Um, you know reconstruct their life and it's um in a positive way i i would imagine yes it's hard but it's hopeful yes right so i uh, can can uh, you give give me the um the, i understand there's a helpline at next step uh, if we can just get the the number and yes absolutely so the helpline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so when you call that number, you're automatically connected with an advocate that can help you um, 
with whatever questions you might have. And so that number is for both people who um, are in, have encountered abuse or are enduring abuse and also the people that love them or uh, service providers who might need some consultation. And that number is 1-800-315-5579. Thank you. This is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. We are talking today about domestic violence with Pam Gagnon Da Silva, a licensed clinical professional counselor at Next Step, a domestic violence project working in Hancock and Washington County. And about to join us is Maggie MacArthur, a paralegal at Next Step, who works with victims of domestic abuse and coordinates with police and prosecutors. So Maggie, welcome. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having us today. Well, uh, when I think about the issues that are important to talk about, this is, um, uh, there's none higher. I think there could be others that are as high. Uh, so can you talk just for a minute or two about um, what's the work you do? Because it's very different from what Pam does, even though there are connections. Yes, I agree there. Uh, Pam and I have a lot of connections in the work that we do, but the work that I do focuses mainly on the legal aspect. Um, there's a lot of court advocacy, which involves, you know, it could be anything from assisting with paperwork, like protection orders or divorce paperwork, to court accompaniment. You know, somebody's going to court for so, a- So let me just stick with that. So that um, a woman who is finally going to, to court, um, what, do you, what do you do to help, help that process? Well, if sure they're going to court, you know, sometimes we assist with the paperwork, but, you know, you'll get a court date and request an advocate to go with you. And, you know, that's, there's a group of us, but typically I'm, I'm one of the advocates that goes to court and that might just be, you know, sitting there with them in the courtroom for moral support. It might be um, being the person who kind of acts as a go-between to assist with a protection order, or it could be, you know, finding a conference room where, they have some privacy and making sure they don't run into you know, their their abuser. I would imagine that during the court process, um, there are times when they're in the same room together. That that ha happens quite frequently, um, and that's that's what I'm there for to be support for that. And sometimes that could just be myself in a way so that their abuser can't make eye contact with them, that they can't try to intimidate them just by looking at them. Sometimes it can be as simple as that. And what, what kind of involvement do you have with police and also prosecutors? Um, another part of the job is enhanced safety planning. So that might mean you know, typically when, when anyone is working with us, we work on a safety plan with them. That's something that all advocates do. Um, my part of it comes into, 
making connection with probation officers to find out what bail conditions are, you know, things like that. It can be connecting with victim witness advocates at the district attorney's office to find out what they have for suggestions, you know, and sitting in on those meetings when the prosecution is going forward. You know, it's, it's kind of connecting the dots. It's meeting with law enforcement. Um, and from your perspective um, in Hancock and Washington County, uh, are the police focused on these issues? Are they doing good work? Yes, I think that we have some, some wonderful departments here. They're all really great about connecting with us. You know, if they've, if they've gone out on a call and they feel like this person that they've met could really use somebody to talk to or some assistance with the process, they make that connection. You know, they, they, they'll send a release or, you know, have that person call us while they're there. And I think the law enforcement in Hancock and Washington County, they, I think they do a great job. And does that mean that sometimes you are going to the police station to meet with somebody who has just, uh, or maybe to somebody's house uh, with a police officer? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we get called down to the, the police departments. They might just call and say, hey, we've got somebody here. We think you should talk to them. So, you know, that, that's where I go. So do you think that uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, police were doing this? I imagine it was very different at that point. I know um, I grew up in a law enforcement family, so I know the situation was very different then. It used to be separate them, you know, maybe picking one of them up and taking them to a different place. It could be taking them to a hotel for the night. Sometimes it might just mean taking them to a bar, you know, just dropping them off and saying, just stay away for the night. I think it was very different then. Yeah, I, I've heard that latter part uh, of a uh, friend who um, was a police officer and the idea of dropping an abuser off at a bar um, uh, possibly, well, it's hard to think of it being anything other than uh, the risk of exacerbating the situation. Things have changed. Yes, yeah. they have. That wouldn't happen now. Uh, just um, last week, uh, I read a review of a of a book that's come out in the past year um, called "No Visible Bruises: What We Don't Know About TV Can Kill Us." by Rachel Louise Snyder. Um, and uh, I read a long review in the, in the New York Review of Books. And, um, and I was stunned by some of the statistics that um, about domestic violence. And I'm really gonna only focus on the ones in the United States, but it's, uh, but. This is obviously a worldwide problem. 50 American women are killed every month by intimate partners. Between 2000 and 2006, there were over 10,000 domestic homicides. In that same period of time, 
in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, 3,200 soldiers died. In the USA, 20 people are assaulted every minute by their partner. And to me, the most um, surprising, I knew of a couple of these, but it's much more than a couple. A study from 2017 said that, concluded that 54% of mass shootings in the US, also elsewhere, had as part of that involvement in domestic violence. Um, uh, the awful murder of the 26 children in Sandy Hook Elementary School and also teachers started with that young man killing his mother. Uh, In April, the largest mass shooting in Canadian history, um, which we just read about so recently, began with a domestic violence assault. So from your, I'm just interested in maybe uh, Pam, what are your reactions to that? And uh, both sort of across the United States, uh, but also uh, from a main perspective. Yeah, I think, You know, I'm horrified by those numbers, and I think we all should be. They're, um, you know, it's profound. I'm also not surprised by them. I think it definitely reflects what we see in our community. And I think it reflects also what, um, as as identifying as female, you know, what I've known throughout my life, um, both, you know, my experience and experiences with other, um, other females. Um, Maggie, um, when I, when you first um, heard those statistics, if, if you have heard them before, um, uh, do, do, was it something that you knew, or was it um, some of it even m- much more higher numbers nationally than you might have thought? Um, I think I, I have have heard those statistics before, and. You know, I think my, my reaction is very similar to Pam's. I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, and, you know, it's domestic violence. It's really insidious in the way that, you know, it takes its, in the shape that it takes. So and I, I'm really not surprised to hear those. And I think one of the places where the insidiousness comes comes to bear is part, a significant part, Maggie, of your work, which is um, being there with a, uh, with a victim, um, with a, uh, the perpetrator there and perhaps trying to intimidate. Does that happen? Yes, it does. And, you know, sometimes it could be just a simple gesture, you know, something that a hand gesture that she recognized, you know, it could be something like that. And that, that's part of my job is to be there. You know, if there's a protection order in place, I can, 
I can report that, you know, if I'm there and see that, I can, that's something we can act on. You know, and it so, so how do you act on it? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're in a room with police officers and judges in, in a court, criminal court case. Um, do you get help? Yes, absolutely. You know, you, if you're in the courtroom and he's done something that's a violation of a protection order, then you find a marshal and, you know, you, you connect with that marshal, let them know what's happening. And then, you know, that gets reported to law enforcement. But, but I also can imagine that this can become very subtle. Somebody is simply making a smile that, um, that raises. Um, yes, absolutely. That, that does happen. And, you know, that's not something you can report. That's not something just, you know, smiling at somebody is unfortunately, even though, you know, it, it might look like a smile to some, but to that survivor, they understand what that means. They know the reasoning why he's he's making these gestures. And it might be the same smile that occurred um, when the woman was abused. Yes. Um, uh, Pam, um, I'm not talking, I want to ask about um, sort of the increase or decrease over your work, but um, but, but I don't want to go yet to how COVID-19 may have changed things. We'll get to that. So just generally over um, how many years have you been doing this work? Well, I've been with Next Step since about six years now. I've been doing, working with um, families, family violence since 1987. So over 30 years, a long time. That, that, that is a long time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what we know in the last five years at Next Up, we really haven't seen an increase. And I think that's reflective of the, you know, maybe the state as a whole. Um, we were roughly, we serve about a thousand people per year. So, um, and we think that, and that number has stayed steady in the last five years. We think that that's also um, a reflection of the the population really staying at about the same number and maybe decreasing over time. Um, one thing we have noticed is an increase in the number of strangulation cases we've seen and we and, and human trafficking as well, um, and sexual trafficking. And we think that's so because we're getting really good at um, identifying that now. We've had we're training in the community. Um, a large part of what I do and what Maggie does and, and other advocates at Next Step is um, community education. And so as we train the community about um, what, what to look for, we're starting to see people be able to put words to what they're experiencing. Um, I do think there's an increase in the um, in, in intersecting factors. So um, factors that aren't causal, but they're reciprocal. So uh, substance, yeah, substance use, um, untreated you know, behavioral health problems or what people might call mental health problems. And as services maybe decline in other places, we're starting to see the impact of that. Um, if people can't, if, they're, if, if they lose their health insurance and they can't afford mental health treatment, then we would expect that we would see more distress in that area, which would impact their ability to stay safe in the relationship on either side, whether it's the, the abusive party or the non-abusive party. So 
with all of the um, remarkable work that um, Pam, that you're doing and Maggie and you and the rest of the people at, at Next Step and the people who are working this out of um, district attorney's office and police and um, uh, would I be correct to, to conclude that uh, we're doing a much, much better job in addressing these issues, but we're not reducing the incidents. I think I'd agree with that. I think that we're much better able to recognize it. I think that, um, I think that we are able to address a wider range and, and in a more effective way, um, a wider range of the impact. So just as Maggie talked about, you know, there's, there's the physical violence and sexual violence, but then a large part of it is emotional and financial and the impact on using children and family members, pets. Um, so we're able, you know, as we go along, we look at all of those aspects and we're able to address them more effectively. And Next Step, like many domestic violence programs around the state and the country, has a lot of what we call enhanced uh, advocacy. So there are specific areas, for example, Maggie's area, the legal area, mine, the counseling. We have um, someone who's a child protective liaison that helps people to navigate that system. We have, um, you know, people working on uh, education specifically to try to expand knowledge in the community. So oh, there's oh, so I'd like to, to focus on that for a second because yeah. as the, 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 the first is, is, much of what you talked about is part of the response. And um, do we know whether the uh, prevention programs in schools um, or uh, works? Yeah, so I began as a youth educator at Next Step and, and my job was to go into the schools and, um, and work with with children of all ages, preschool up to college. And I continue to teach a course in intimate partner violence um, at College of the Atlantic. Um, and I would say, I think the most effective is the probably the course that I teach now. I think the going in and, and maybe meeting with students for an hour once in a year is really not an effective way to create change. I think we really need to partner with the schools and to be able to continue to work with the students, you know, throughout the course of the year and then even over the summer and, and follow them for, you know, throughout their educational experience. I think that's the most powerful way if we're going to, you know, to work within the system to create change within that school community so that it can be brought out to the world outside of those walls. And you I don't get think that. we're there yet um, with that. Yeah. That was my question. And yeah, I, we're not there I, yet. As you know, I, have been doing, uh, developed a workshop with uh, the uh, Kennebec County TV group, similar to, to yours, and um, have been continuing that work in one school in, in uh, Washington County. Uh, and uh, one of the things that's hardest when you are doing work, prevention work, is uh, is knowing how successful it is 
particularly over time. And if you are really trying to do that, you've got to hire a evaluator and often that's more expensive than the program itself. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic program though. I'm really uh, glad that you're doing that work and that you're out um, in the community. And I think really what will tell us whether or not it's effective over time will be, you know, the decrease in the amount of people needing our services. And we always say, you know, that if we can work ourselves out of a job, we'll be thrilled. You know, that's our, our goal. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd say just one more thing about this is um, uh, that is hard is your you you could be doing really tremendous work with kids up up to age eighteen, and then it's much harder to be able to do this afterwards. People are in the workforce; they're they're some of them in college, some are going to the military. So it's um, it's hard to to have a continue. Well, that's why we have the education program that happens in the community, our coordinated community response program. So you know we're working with we you know we meet with church groups, we meet with um, educators, we meet with I, I provide um, training for mental health providers. You know Maggie helps um, with education for law enforcement. You know we're trying with um, all aspects of the community to continue that education after school. Thank you. This is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. We are talking today about domestic violence with Pam Gagnon De Silva, a licensed clinical professional counselor at Next Step, a domestic violence project working in Hancock and Washington County, and with Maggie MacArthur a paralegal at Next Step who works with victims of domestic abuse and coordinates with police and prosecutors. So this will be a question for both of you and Pam, I'll start with you. What's the, the hardest part of your job? And that could be both just the, for the day-to-day difficult things, but also um, what's emotionally hard about this job? So I think one of the hardest things is to see the damage that's caused by, um, you know, the harm that one person can do to another or to their family. Um, and, and so sometimes that, you know, can be looking at the physical injuries, hearing about the sexual trauma, um, and the emotional toll over time. Um, just really looking at how, as Maggie said, it's an insidious issue and it really impacts every aspect of a person's life. And so it can be profoundly damaging. Um, So that's the hardest part, you know, staying present with it and being witness with it and and holding all of those stories. So, um, well, I think what I heard was that it's, that at some point those stories um, are become part of you and, um, and that can be hard. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one of my um, clinical supervisors gave me a great technique. They said, you know, at the end of the day, imagine everyone you've worked with getting in the car with you and your job is to make sure they all get dropped off before you reach your home. So the concept being, you know, not to take your work home with you. 
And I think that, you know, I think that's a great way to do it. And it really works uh, most days. But, you know, often there's somebody who makes it in the door. You know, um, it's very hard to leave, you know, when we're aware and worried about a person, especially if we know they're really at risk. It's very hard to leave that at work and, and come home and disconnect from that. This work really is part of who we are. And I think all of us that do this work, it's, it's, it becomes a deeply personal thing. And really, it's, it becomes a lifestyle, you know, and that's what we want to impart. We want to lead with that example of what we want to see in the world. And so, you know, we really do take our work with us. Um, it's hard to take that hat off. And so finding that balance, you know, how, how to be with the work but not have it um, have a negative impact, you know, so that we can continue to do it is really important. I, I think for all the, the people I've interviewed, on this show, but for uh, for myself and for uh, friends I have, we we tr we come up with strategies that work until they don't work. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but they're important because it, it you can still reduce it. Um, and we'll come back in a, in a minute after. Um, to actually what do you do? But um, before that, M Maggie, what's the hardest part for you? I think for me, it's it's very similar to Pam. It's, you know, you're seeing this trauma and you, you wanna help. And I think sometimes, you know, there are situations where there's only so much that you can do. It's that feeling of wanting to help, but knowing that you have done what you can and it's out of your hands at this point. It's it's the not being able to, to fix it, it's, you know, to not be able to make things right for that person. And that's really difficult. And um, yeah, that's what I, I seem to struggle with is not being able to make things right for people, to, you know, to take that trauma and, you know, help them. And I, I know we are helping them. We are helping them to rebuild their lives. But sometimes, you know, you, you want to you have a magic wand to fix it. You know? to just make it right immediately. And, and I assume that this um, includes um, somebody going back to their abuser and in fact, they continue to have abuse, um, which has to be really difficult. That's, it's difficult. Um, you know, really what you can do in that situation is to plan with them, their safety, to be there you know, even if they just need somebody to talk to, because they, they know their situation better than anybody else. We can't make that decision for them. And that's not what we're here for. Yeah. Can I say that um, there's a myth that, you know, if you leave someone who you're in a relationship with who's abusive to you, that the abuse stops. And what we know is that, um, that it continues, you know, and, and I think that's one of the hardest things too, is to see someone doing everything they can to keep themselves safe. And we don't have control over the actions of other people, you know. Um, there's a lot of things we can do to create more safety and, and we work at that. But I think that, um, you know, just because someone leaves the relationship doesn't, you know, doesn't often does not mean that the abuse stops. That's important. Uh, that there's a uh, a concept that I know both of you know about and secondary traumatic stress. Um, Pam, maybe you could just describe um, what that is and how it's 
different from PTSD? Sure. Yeah, so through, you know, it's often a cumulative thing, I think, you know, through repeatedly hearing the stories, um, it changes our life view in many ways, you know, and so we can take on um, part of that trauma. So we, we might, for example, might feel unsafe in the community and, and be more hypervigilant um, than other people. There's a great um, book called Trauma Stewardship um, that I think is, the author is uh, Anders Lute. I have to, to look up the, the name again. Maybe you have it. Um, but they, they tell a story in that uh, book that I just think is amazing. They're talking about how they're hiking with their family in this beautiful place and everyone's, you know, looking out over, um, you know, this beautiful horizon. And, and the, um, the person telling the story who works with trauma is talking about how, you know, while everyone's enjoying the beautiful view, they're thinking about what if I had to do a, a search and rescue, you know, how quickly could the ambulance get here and all these other pieces. And I think that's a great example. So, you know, it, it changes our outlook. You know, we don't want to be in a place where we lose our joy for the world. And, and so really have to be mindful of that in, in the work. Um, and that's secondary trauma, you know, it's, it's um, taking on that experience and, um, and having an impact on well-being. And uh, secondary traumatic stress can involve uh, impacts that are similar to PTSD. Absolutely. And it's, it's a way of separating what people who are doing human rights or um, work um, uh, and they're not being directly affected. They're not the one that is being hurt by an abuser. Um, but my guess is that some that in your career you've seen some people just leave the work because they couldn't continue it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, I, and I think that's okay. You know, it's really important for us to know what our capacity is at any given time. And um, there's times we need to step away and take care of ourselves so that we can come back and, and reapproach the work. I think that that is important. And I think it's also important, which I'm sure happens at Next Step, um, is to embed talking about um, secondary traumatic stress um, with people in the organization and with strategies for reducing the risk. We do, yeah, we, we have a big focus on that. I think we talk a lot about self-care. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to work at Next Step is because they're so good at that, you know, and I was um, often worked with Next Step staff prior to becoming a volunteer there and then becoming employed with them. And I could see that team, um, you know, looking from the outside, how supportive they were of one another and how, um, how well they work together with respect and, and equality. And I thought, I want to be part of that team. And that is still true. You know, um, a large part of the support that we have in the day-to-day -day is through our peer work, you know, being able to walk across the hall and say, I'm struggling with this and it's really difficult. And knowing that we'll be heard and that we'll have um, some real positive suggestions for how we can reapproach the work and that support going forward. So it really is an atmosphere of, of equality. Um, and Maggie, you may have something to add to that, but 
No, I, I agree. It's, you know, really important that, you know, you can reach out to anybody that you're working with just to, you know, any of your coworkers, just to, even if it's five minutes. So, um, Maggie, I'll start with, with you first. What, what is self-care for you, trying to avoid traumatic stress, whether it's mindfulness activities or something else? What, what keeps, keeps you feeling balanced? Well, for me, it's um, one big part is I'm a stress baker. So, you know, if I've had a really rough day, I, I'll go home and I'll bake cupcakes or something and, you know, bring those to the office the next day. It's, that's, that's one thing for me. And being able to just check in with coworkers or, you know, just walk down the hall and say, hey, that was a really tough call. Can I just, just sit and talk with you for a little bit? That's, you know, that's a big part. And I do a lot of um, crafts when I'm home, things like that. And, you know, so it's, it's trying to leave things at the door when I get home and focusing on you know, spending time with my, my family or just you know, taking five minutes to sit out on my deck and just enjoy the quiet. Thank you. Pam, what's, what's, what do you do? I think the biggest piece for me is really whatever I'm doing, I really want to be sure I'm engaging um, in the moment. So that mindfulness piece. So if I'm still with the thoughts of the day, um, then I'm really not escaping from it. So I really try to immerse myself in the present moment, um, spending time with my family, my children, my pets. Um, I love being outdoors. So hiking, backpacking, kayaking, anything, skiing in the winter. Um, I do a lot of artwork, remodeling of my, my old farmhouse and um, reading, you know, all of those things. But I think really the trick is making sure I'm taking care of my physical health. And I'm also taking care to, to be in that moment and let that stress go and not stay with that narrative. And that's what I try to teach people. I realize it's, it's a hard thing to do. It takes a lot of practice. You have to keep doing it over and over before you get it. And sometimes even then, you know, it doesn't, doesn't quite stick. So it's a work in progress. Yeah, I've seen a huge change in different kinds of human rights um, organizations um, about how they focus on trying to keep the people that they work with balanced. And I've, the number of stories that I've um, heard uh, far less frequently now where the response from the executive director is, excuse me, we don't have enough time to talk about um, our issues. Uh, if we do that, then um, somebody else is going to get her her guy um and of course that's unfortunate <laughs> that's unfortunate right. the next step we really um we have an agreement that we'll hold one another accountable as well so you know we do try if we see amongst our our staff team that someone is struggling you know we really do try to make uh, not try we do make the time consistently you know to to be present and to try to help support one another in that way we're fortunate to have that, a director who's supportive of that. So how has um, the coronavirus or has the coronavirus created changes in 
the work you do. Um, you've seen an increase, you've seen a decrease. Is it harder to do your work? Maggie, what, what's going on in courts that makes it work? We are seeing some changes there. We're still doing protection orders. You know, they've, they've found ways to make it, if not easier, but make it more accessible for people who can't, who can't leave the home. So, you know, you can do things online and, um, you know, it might be mediations that happen over the phone or through video. Um, we're not seeing a lot of family matters going forward right now, but. I imagine uh, they're, they're not doing criminal cases over Zoom. No, no, those are still going forward, just not, not as fast as they typically would. Um, so, you know, there is some struggle there is, is for things to go forward in the court and not stall out. Um, things are still happening, just go down a lot. And, and really very um, practical problems like is your jury room big enough to have people six six feet apart? A chance. Well, I believe at this point they're not doing jury trials. Okay. And, you know that's kind of on hold for the moment. Right, which of course could then delay um, a trial for a long, long time. If the, I think they're working on making it happen. It's just you know it, it takes some time for them to figure out how it's possible. You know, for a jury trial, you need to be in the room to see, you know. Um, Pam, um, in terms of your work, um, has there been a change? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just agency-wide, you know, initially we saw a drop in the number of helpline calls. And we believe that's so because um, opportunity to be able to call safely was probably reduced with people being home. Um, and, and uh, you know, there, so the ability to reach out was definitely impacted. But with my work, um, I already have a, an established group of people that I work with. Um, I work with roughly about um, between 10 to 15 people a week for our sessions. And so what I found is that my work pretty much doubled overnight. You know, people were wanting to talk more frequently. Um, and you know, they were really um, very stressed about this COVID situation and, and wanting to do some processing around that as well. And I think also, you know, I really noticed the impact and I, I typically meet face-to-face -face with people in an office setting and that's not possible right now. So, you know, we had two days to figure out how we were going to provide the services we, as we closed down. And so trying to figure out, you know, what's a HIPAA approved site to do um, a session you know, by camera. And, and so, you know, even just those pieces, it was evolving as we were going along. So I did a lot of sessions by phone initially, and I didn't have a headset. So, you know, I was holding the, the phone for maybe, you know, five hours straight. So those things became a, a little tricky at the start. And, and now I've noticed, um, so, so I think my numbers were, you know, like around 89 contacts in a month, and it jumped up to, um, you know, about 120 or something or 130 um, in, in the month of March. And now it's starting to level out a little bit. I think the weather's nicer and people you know, really want to be outside and have other outlets and um, businesses have opened up. So some people now are feeling safer. You know, they've been able to reconnect with resources or, or you know, the abusive party's not in the house. 
I could imagine that, uh, particularly in the bad weather and when um, before things have started to open up a little, just the sense of claustrophobia that that uh, a woman might feel uh, not being able to have any distancing from their partner. Yeah, absolutely. And that's terrifying to not really have a way to have any any sort of break or escape. Um, well, we are um, coming up against the end of this. I have a feeling we could have spent um, a lot more time on uh, on issues and maybe we'll come back sometime later and can continue this. Uh, and I want to just thank you both so much for what the work you do and for uh, how important it is, how hard it can be on you. So thank you. You've been listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I am Steve Wessler. Our guests today were Pam Gagne da Silva and her colleague Maggie MacArthur, who work at Next Step Hancock County's Domestic Violence Project. Pam is a licensed clinical professional counselor and advocate. Maggie is a paralegal working with victims, police, and prosecutors. You can listen to Change Agents the first Thursday of every month here on WERU at 89.9 FM and streaming at WERU.org. And uh, for everybody, um, stay safe.